Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, May 26th. I'm Kristen Roberts, and we had a big week. Here are the numbers that mattered. Six. That's how many weeks Donald Trump's national political director kept his job. 449,000 the max donation to the Trump Victory Committee that's supposed to help Donald Trump help the party. 250,000, it's an enormous sum immediately raised by the man challenging Debbie Wasserman Schultz after Bernie Sanders came to his side. And 10.8, the percentage point lead Sanders has over Donald Trump in a fake general election matchup. Grab your calculators and enjoy one of the best 26 nerdcasts we've done yet. Hello again, everybody. Hadas Gold. Hello. Ken Vogel. Hey. And senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Hi, Kristen. Six weeks. That's how long Wiley lasted on Donald Trump's campaign. Ken, what happened? Well, a couple things happened here. First of all, Wiley got caught in the crosshairs of the Corey Lewandowski versus Paul Manafort rivalry almost immediately. Uh, he was uh, he was brought in by Manafort. He was actually Manafort's first big hire as Manafort sought to put his imprint on the campaign, and he immediately stopped talking to some of the people who Lewandowski had brought on from earlier. And so there was frustration with him on that front, and Lewandowski had a reason to try to push for his ouster. But then additionally, he lost Manafort and, in so doing, lost Trump. And, and some of the things that I had heard from sources that only we here know is that he had started working out of the RNC. He was working almost exclusively out of the RNC as opposed to the campaign's D.C. office, which is Manafort's fiefdom. And he told people that the reason he was doing that is because he didn't get good cell service at the campaign's headquarters, so he had to work out of the RNC. But while he was working out of the RNC, he was working with some of the vendors who I understand that the Trump people do not like. These are vendors who had worked on the Never Trump stuff, and he was trying to get them to do general election projects for the RNC, but on behalf of the Trump campaign, that ran afoul of Manafort. And additionally, he kind of freelanced on putting together the joint fundraising agreement. Did he really? Yeah, he put together this agreement that in many ways helps the RNC more than it helps the, the Trump campaign. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but uh, the one thing that jumped out was that the Nevada chair, McDonald, who was actually an early Trump supporter, one of the few state party chairs who was a Trump supporter, was was pissed off that he was not in the joint fundraising agreement. Nevada is not in there. And he called people at the Trump campaign and said, hey, what gives? Why aren't I in this? And Trump asked the question to Manafort, hey, why isn't my supporter, McDonald, and his state in the, in the uh, joint fundraising agreement? And that apparently was one of 
the final straws. Another was this fight that he picked with Karen Giorno, who was the uh, Trump's, Trump campaign's Florida director during the primary, who was a Lewandowski ally, who was a close connection to Trump. She went to Trump with her grievances. The combination of that with the uh, joint fundraising agreement, with him losing Manafort and, and, and being freelancing at the RNC, so that was the straw. they were irritated already. <laughs> yeah, he, he did not have a strong hand, and he overplayed so it. So what did, okay, so Wiley was brought on, obviously he came from the Walker campaign. A lot of people saw it as a professionaliza- professionalization, kind of a connection to the estate, quote unquote establishment class in a way, as much as Walker was, you know, establishment class. Uh, what does the Trump campaign then lose from losing Wiley? Do they lose anything valuable at all? I'm not sure. I mean, you're right. He is a connection to the the modern establishment. So that's one thing that Manafort lacked. I mean, Manafort sure he has a ton of experience with the GOP establishment. But the last time that he was in a senior position on a presidential campaign was 1996. Right. So Rick Wiley presumably would have given him that more current Rolodex, more current connection to the vendors and to the party officials and even elected officials who could be helpful, including Reince Priebus, uh, the RNC chairman, who is a close ally. Of, uh, of both Walker's and Rick Wiley's, but obviously that didn't work out. And what a disastrous election cycle for Rick Wiley running the oh Walker God, campaign into the ground and being blamed for building a, a, a bloated campaign structure that imploded on itself and then going straight to the Trump campaign less than six weeks. You know, I think you're exactly right about this is a Rick Wiley story more than it is a Donald Trump story, right? This little piece of it, because it's not like Rick Wiley's departure says anything about Donald Trump's willingness to engage with the RNC. Because we had another story reported by you and Caputo this week about the Trump campaign reaching out to Michael Caputo, right? The Trump (laughs) campaign is very eager to use the RNC and their research abilities, right? Because they're trying to come up with the attack lines and the messaging around Hillary Clinton. What have we seen this week, Hadass or Ken, Charlie, about about where Hillary Clinton is vulnerable in the eyes of Donald Trump. Well, it's like a time machine back to the 1990s, right? I mean, all of these old scandals are coming back. Kind of shocking, almost in a way, that the Trump campaign even needed to reach out to the RNC for for help and for quote unquote dirt on Whitewater, which is where yeah, this, Wikipedia you know. <laughs> looks pretty well in that in that instance. Right. I mean, you would you there have literally been books written about these things, but that just goes to show you maybe that they don't have a research operation in the Trump campaign and that um, they don't actually know as much about these scandals and they're just going to go out put Donald Trump out there. And or they're just outsourcing. Right. And that they're dependent on the RNC. I mean, for so many things. And that's why it's it's key to have someone who is you know, trustworthy and is is channeling the campaign's upper reaches to the RNC. Also, I should say to the super PAC world. I mean, this is a campaign that is just still skeletal. And so it needs the help from the party, from the big money uh, outside world. And it's so key in this day and age with the coordination rules to be able to have people who can communicate with a wink and a nod or on the same page so difficult for the Trump campaign to do that because at the upper reaches of the campaign, they're not on the same page. Well, Charlie, Clinton had to know this was coming. I don't know that she had to know because I think the assumption was all of this stuff from the 1990s and, and or even back to the 70s with the, uh, the uh, defendant that, that Hillary uh, defended in, in, in the rape case. I mean, all of that was sort of thought to be uh, in the past and not worthy of litigation. And certainly the media didn't really dive into it in the way that uh, they had in the past. And so what I took from from that uh, request from the RNC was a couple of things. Number one, as, as Hadass and Ken mentioned, 
Uh, it gave you an idea of the skeletal framework of that campaign, but also, to me, it helped explain a little bit why Republicans might be unifying behind the Trump campaign. I'm talking about the rank-and-file Republicans that you're seeing uh, consolidate in the polls now, because uh, think about it from the perspective of a lot of rank-and-file Republicans, their, their frustration with the Clintons, a lot of it is driven by the fact that they think that they've gotten a pass on all of these things, whether it's Monica Lewinsky, whether it is Whitewater, whether it's all of it. They feel that the Clintons have never truly been held accountable in the way that they would like to see them the held accountable. The dude was impeached. <laughs> right, it's, but it's he like wasn't taken from office, you know? So, the, like, the point is, they feel that, uh, they feel a frustration that at the end of the day, nothing ever happened to them. Uh, they only got richer. They only got more success. And now, after eight years and two terms of Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton is poised to, to sit in the presidency. And I think that is a very powerful motivator for a lot of Republicans. Two countervailing points on that, Charlie. First of all, it's just absolutely ludicrous to say that the Clintons have not right. been held to account and have not gotten the level of media scrutiny on all these scandals that, say, a Republican would have gotten. That said, it's a new era, and we talk about this in so many different ways with social media, with the nonstop cable news cycle, with so many print outlets out there that, and, and actually Monica Lewinsky talks about this herself, imagine if that scandal were to have broken today, it oh would be God. just absolutely insane. Trump is like the perfect guy to bring those scandals into this modern social media era and see what happens. And I think it's so going to be combustible. About, what's so ironic about Trump bringing all of these into the modern social media era is that Trump himself is not really that modern of a guy. Like, sure, he knows how to tweet, but he gets Drudge Report printed out every morning and handed to him. Like, it's, it's, and he, and he is like straight out of the early 2019 90s. That's what. But he's got he's got such an instinct for this this era oh, and the right. way that things work. I mean the the you know the uh, reality TV, the social media, and the dominating he gets it. of the news cycle. Yeah, I mean, he, gets he finds it. a way to take all of the attention every single day. Right, and he knows how to pivot, and he knows how to. Um, he does that that ridiculous thing where he's like, well, everybody else is talking about this, or I don't want to be the one to bring this up, but... Many, know. many people tell him. <laughs> but it brings me right back to the first point I was trying to make, Charlie, and that is the moment that Donald Trump becomes the nominee, or where all of us can sit around a table and look at one another and say Donald Trump is going to become the nominee, the Hillary Clinton campaign had to do that too. And did they not look at this guy who had taken down one Republican after another in all sorts of unorthodox ways and say, man, all the rules have been thrown out the window and we need to be prepared for all of it. I think there was a degree of overconfidence when it came to uh, Trump. I mean, the, the Clinton campaign, from every indication, they're, you know, they're, they're a really tight uh, well-oiled, well-organized campaign that have planned for everything. But uh, one of the things that I, I think I've seen across the Democratic infrastructure, whether it's the Clinton campaign or anything else, is just a high degree of overconfidence, the idea that this guy could never pull it off at this level. Uh, having said that, uh, how would you prepare for some for a force of nature like Clinton? I don't know that there really was a way to prepare because— Like Clinton uh, or like Trump? I'm, I'm sorry, like, like Donald Trump, because we all know uh, that campaigns are always fighting the last war. But there was never a war like this one. There was never a candidate like— like Trump, you can't even find someone comparable. I mean, no, the, the only one vaguely maybe comparable was like Wendell Wilkie. And he wasn't, he, you know, a different media environment and uh, was a lot more straight-laced uh, in a lot of ways. So you, there's really no way to prepare for something like this. And they are on uh, alien soil here. And everything they're going to be doing is going to be for the first time. And they're going to have to come up with a really creative, unique way of figuring out 
how to defend and how to run against a candidate who sucks all of the oxygen uh, out of the uh, the environment every day, who just chews through news cycles and will live on free media the entire campaign. I didn't want to interrupt you, but that was a strong Wendell Wilkie reference. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let me throw another data point at you. 449,400. That's the maximum contribution to Donald Trump's main joint fundraising committee, Trump Victory. Ken, what does that number tell us about the financial situation of the RNC? The RNC is desperate to raise money and they're using Trump to do it, but it's, a, it's an agreement that is actually better for the RNC than it is for the Trump campaign. And let me unpack that a little bit. Uh, to get to that number, 449400, you have to include not just the 11 state parties that are in there, each of which have a $10,000 contribution uh, cap that goes towards that uh, number, not just the Trump campaign, which has a $5,400 cap that goes to it, and not just the RNC, which has a $33,400 cap. You have to include these three slush funds, and there's no better word for it, that were created in the omnibus, the Cromnibus bill in 2014 that allow the national party committees to accept contributions of $100,000, a little more than $100,000, to these three separate funds, one of which is used for maintaining the building uh, of, the, of the RNC or the DNC, one of which is used for legal expenses and recounts, and one of which is used for the, the national conventions of the, of the national parties. That money, which if you add it together, accounts for $300,000, almost two-thirds of the $449,400, is really not untouchable by the Trump campaign, according to lawyers who I talk to. Now, Rick Wiley, the aforementioned Rick Wiley, apparently was telling people, oh, no, we're going to find a way to use that $300,000 to benefit the campaign, possibly by using the money that's set aside for the building fund to create uh, uh, victory committees out in the states, but the RNC pushed back and said, "No, no, no, that is our money." Uh, and so, one as as we were talking about Rick Wiley, one of the ironic things is that the great deal maker Donald Trump had this guy strike a deal for his campaign with the RNC. That's not that great of a deal for the campaign. Which probably didn't help the whole perception that maybe Rick Wiley wasn't as loyal to Trump and to the campaign as he should have, could have been. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we had we quoted a person in our story about Rick Wiley getting fired that said that he has RNC stamped on his forehead. And yeah, there were some questions about, was he striking this deal? Is this deal better for, was he striking for the RNC? Or was he striking it for the Trump campaign? The deal, I think, is clearly better for the RNC. Well, the RNC needs some money, too. You know, Scott Bland, always the smartest guy in the room, pointed out to me just a few minutes ago that at this point, four years ago, Mitt Romney had transferred his first $26 million to the RNC. And then he did it again in June, and he did it again in July. The RNC is not getting that money from Trump right now. Yeah, that's right. Trump does not have a fundraising structure in place. And yet another thing that he was relying on the RNC to help him with, to use piggyback off of their fundraising infrastructure to be able to raise money into this new committee at that $449,400 max. Uh, he just started having fundraisers this very week. And the people who I talk to, even people who are supportive of him, say that it's going to be tough to find bundlers. You know, there was a uh, one of these good government groups put out in their morning email a call for Donald Trump to release his bundlers when he filed his FEC report. And I'm thinking he could do like a Bernie Sanders, like, you want me to release my bundlers? Here they are! And like throw his hands up and sort of like mock, you know, papers with nothing in them. God, can you do that every week? That was great. $27. 
But Charlie, what does that mean? What does it mean that the RNC isn't getting as much money from Donald Trump as it might have gotten from Mitt Romney in years past? What can they not do because they don't have that cash? Well, I think it points to the 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 fact that stru- from a structural standpoint, uh, Trump begins one step behind the Clinton campaign in lots of important places. Like, for example, priorities has already blanketed the swing state landscape with ad reservations. And so uh, even if the Democratic convention ends up being messier than the Republican convention, uh, when they come out of it, Donald Trump is going to be one step behind and will be scrambling to catch up and keep pace with Hillary Clinton from a campaign structure standpoint. And it's yet another place in which the lack of uh, cohesiveness atop the campaign is really posing a challenge, is setting them back, the, particularly in the outside money standpoint. Priorities USA, it's not just Priorities USA that Clinton has in her corner. She has uh, Priorities USA doing the advertising. She has American Bridge, the David Brock super PAC, doing the outside opposition research on the Republicans. She has Correct the Record, another David Brock super PAC, coordinating directly with the campaign on messaging. Trump has none of that, and they, while they have tried to start uh, super PACs, and the campaign has tried to bless super PACs to go out and raise big money on behalf of the campaign, <coughs> you have Corey Lewandowski and Paul Manafort fighting over which super PAC is going to be the one that's the anointed super PAC. So the donors are sitting there being like, eh, what do you want us to do? I don't know, guys. I mean, it, it, on paper, we all know that Hillary Clinton looks like she's got the better campaign here, right? It hasn't mattered no. yet. It it didn't That's, matter in the primary. And Donald Trump himself has said this. He said this in an interview to the AP that he thinks that the Obama data machine was overblown, that people voted for Obama because of him, because of his personality. And that's the reason why Trump has been able to knock out somebody like Jeb Bush, who had the biggest war chest, who had the biggest organization, who seemed poised, again, on paper. And Ted Cruz. Yeah. Talk about a exa- data guy. Exactly. Ted, I mean, Ted Cruz still has the zombie campaign that I think they won, what, like 10 delegates in Washington just this week? Uh, and so I, Donald Trump, I think he'll play along with, you know, the super PACs and with the fundraising because he knows it does matter. But at the end of the day, he'll say they're going to vote for me because of me, not because we have some kind of super micro-targeted machine. We, we know that you have to have a product to sell. Like you can't win without a candidate. But at the same time, if you look back at recent presidential elections, I mean, one of the things we've learned is that they require, winning requires a high degree of uh, uh, of sophistication and execution from the campaigns because just trace back the last couple of cycles. 2004, the, the George Bush re-election campaign at the time was thought of as the gold standard of presidential campaigns. It was a magnificent job of executing a plan. And then, and no one thought it could get better than that. Then Obama went four years later and outpaced it in terms of execution and sophistication. So, I mean, I think the era in which you could sort of wing it to a certain degree based on the back of a charismatic candidate is over. But in some ways, Charlie, we're, we're kind of talking about the same thing. I mean, uh, it, it's true that, that Obama's campaign was much more sophisticated, but it was much more sophisticated because it was employing the latest technology on all of these different fronts, whether it was social media. I mean, remember 2008, Barack Obama, we talked about Facebook last time. Conservatives should go start their own Facebook if they're unhappy with Facebook. In 2008, Barack Obama tried to start his own Facebook. It was called, oddly, MyBO, which is a terrible <laughs> name. But it, it legit was called that. And they, and they made a lot of strides on using social media to get people 
people out to vote. And then in 2012, obviously, they leapfrog over that uh, and were and, and took advantage even more of things like Facebook and Twitter. They scrapped my BO for 2012. Uh, but, you know. Um, Trump is, and, I mean, and Trump is taking, is using social media clearly. That's what I was going to say. That's the point I was going to try to get to is that Trump is, is using all these new technological advancements, even if he doesn't have the campaign infrastructure in place that Clinton has and isn't using it through some gigantic and well thought out uh, campaign structure, he is nonetheless using it arguably more effectively. I mean, than but the only thing she's got is structure, right? right. That's what totally. she's got is structure. She doesn't have a communications plan that works. She's not a candidate who can deliver a message that's compelling. All she has is structure. I've always said this to my friends. I mean, it just imagine like a Joe Biden against a Donald Trump right now. I think we'd have a much different situation because you would have a much more charismatic candidate who, with that, with the Democratic structure behind him, with the Obama structure behind him that maybe would have a better chance of taking on Donald Trump. And, and, that, and that is Bernie Sanders' argument, that he could do <laughs> that. And in fact, we saw some news break recently that they there's a possibility that they might actually debate one another. Uh, uh, it turns out it might be more of a joke than, I mean, so that... God, that, I hope it's not a joke. I know, it would be amazing. And, and actually, it would be like everybody's dream come true. I think John Bresnahan said he would give up Christmas presents for the next 10 years if he could... Uh, if you could see that happen. But it, it, I mean, that all came about from the Jimmy Kimmel appearance where Kimmel asked Sanders and Trump who were appearing one night after another to ask each other a question. So it actually was proposed by Sanders. And Sanders asked Trump via Kimmel, will you do a debate with me since Clinton has now dropped out and said she's not going to do a Fox News debate? Trump said, sure, why not? I'll debate you. And can you imagine like the heads exploding probably in the DNC over that? Um, from what I from what I understand, it Trump sort of meant it as a joke, but with Trump, you never know. I want to bring Scott Bland in. Scott, say hello. Hello, fellow he, nerds. He is editor of Campaign Pro, and he is bringing to the table another data point: two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, that is the amount of money raised by Debbie Wasserman Schultz's primary challenger after Bernie Sanders sent out a fundraising appeal. Tell me some more about this. Yeah, so this guy's name is Tim Canova. He is a, he was a little, well, he still is a little known law professor from, from Florida who decided uh, that, uh, a Bernie Sanders supporter who decided that uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, not only, uh, as a lot of Sanders supporters think, doesn't deserve to be in charge of the Democratic National Committee, that she doesn't deserve to hold a House seat either. And so he's running a primary campaign against her. And up until this week has just been drafting uh, off of Sanders and, you know, appealing to Sanders donors on Reddit and on social media, other forums. But this week, Sanders actually sent out a fundraising email for Canova to the official massive Sanders fundraising email list. And it generated a quarter million dollars in just 24 hours. Um, and that, that's just, it's an enormous amount of money. I think the, the thing that I've been thinking about for perspective is that at the beginning of last year, when uh, Kamala Harris started running for Senate in California, this is the state attorney general, uh, started running for Senate in California, Elizabeth Warren sent out a fundraising email to her email list for Harris asking her her uh, followers if they could raise $25,000 for Kamala Harris. Wow. And they did. And and that's that's really good 
that's that's good for for an online fundraising appeal. But Sanders has generated such a huge following that's so engaged right now, and Canova is now one of four House candidates who is who have gotten at least that quarter million very quickly from just a, a Sanders email. Yeah, and there there are two really interesting things going on here. First of all, there's this idea that Hillary Clinton and her supporters have, have uh, sort of pushed that Bernie Sanders is not doing anything to help uh, down ticket uh, races. So we've seen him raise money for a few select candidates. And, uh, you know, they're all folks who are sort of philosophically aligned with him where you could see, oh, that makes sense. We had Zephyr Teach out in New York. We had Russ Feingold in Wisconsin. Uh, we had Lucy Flores in Nevada. All those make sense as sort of like a philosophical motivation and alignment with Sanders. Canova, that may be the case as well, but let's make no mistake about it. This one is personal. He is going to get back at Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the DNC for what he sees as the thumb that has been on the scale from the beginning in favor of Hillary Clinton and against him. Among other things, I think it also shows uh, an increasing uh, level of political sophistication of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Because keep in mind, when he came in, this was about a movement. This was about an ideological candidate who didn't really do politics. He never really had that tough of a race, no matter what he says. You know, it was in Vermont. It was a single-party state, you know, sort of fractured universe there. But either way, he never went through the wars like others did. And look at what he's done in recent weeks. He's really flexed his muscles on lots of different fronts, stuck it to Wasserman Schultz with the Canova endorsement, which was pretty clever, comes out with the Trump debate Again, a pretty clever move to uh, own a news cycle. And also, if you take a look at the candidates he's endorsed, it's not just progressive candidates. It's not just sticking it to Wasserman Schultz. It's not just supporting Tim Canova. It's also supporting a collection of candidates at the state legislative level that not only reflect and signal a commitment to the progressive and democratic cause, but if you drill down even deeper and look at who those statehouse candidates were, lots of candidates of color. Uh, which gets to the weakness that he has in his coalition. Smart. Yeah, and I think I think just this this email we're starting to see uh, this week in the past few weeks just how this following that Sanders has built, especially this email list, could end up being one of the great legacies of his campaign. And because it's allowed him, and we've talked before about just how impressive his online fundraising has been, and how that's allowed him to sustain this surprising, longer than expected challenge to Hillary Clinton. Uh, and you know, it's funneled a lot of money into the presidential race. The amount of money that this is sending into these lower-level races is truly game-changing. In those, yeah, Ken mentioned Ken mentioned Lucy Flores as an example. Lucy Flores, after uh, Sanders fundraised for her in April, raised four hundred eighty-one thousand dollars in the month of April, what? which is. 30% more than she had raised in the previous 11 months combined. And she's running She's running against a uh, another candidate who's endorsed by Bill Clinton and Harry Reid. This is in, the, in Las Vegas. She's running against another candidate who's endorsed by Emily's List, who snubbed Flores after endorsing Flores for LG in 2014. But all of a sudden, she has all this money to work with in the primaries in a few weeks. I'm really curious to see what happens Ken. there. And you think that's impressive. Uh, Canova... Is, is bragging that he has raised almost $1 million this month alone in small-dollar donations. He got 85,000 individual contributions from more than 45,000 individual donors. That is Bernie Sanders-esque. That shows us that the Bernie Sanders online fundraising juggernaut is not slowing down, even as his candidacy sort of wanes. See, so that's where I'm going to stop you, because that's not true. What it shows us is that his candidacy is not waning. 
It shows us that he's the real deal. He's not a movement guy, and he's about to walk into California, and if the polls, which have been right so far, are to be believed, he could walk out of California with a W, Charlie. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the, the most recent polls out of there, the PPIC polls suggest that, and I mean, he's really gaining momentum there, and I think the symbolism of a California win for Bernie Sanders really would change the dynamic of the end of the campaign. It wouldn't maybe change the ultimate outcome, but it certainly changes the tone and the trajectory of the argument. There's been a huge influx in particular uh, in recent weeks. And if, if you're not uh, reading or following on Twitter, Paul Mitchell, who's a, a redistricting and data consultant out in California, you should be ahead of this primary because he's been writing all these really interesting things about the voter registration trends. There's been a huge influx of young voters, Bernie's base, registering there ahead of the primary. I mean, you know, let's be realistic here. Bernie Sanders is not going to be the Democratic nominee. I'll concede the point that his candidacy, the grassroots enthusiasm for his candidacy is not waning. In fact, these figures would suggest, these fundraising figures, that it is building, if anything. Nonetheless, he's not going to be the nominee. And so this is the challenge for the party and for him to sustain it. Scott says that his online fundraising juggernaut and the list that, that derives from it and that powers it could be a legacy, but that has been such a challenge. Campaign after campaign, even successful campaigns that have tried to keep their list strong and rent it out like Mitt Romney or like Hillary Clinton in 2008, we've seen time and again that you actually have to have a figurehead associated with it who has to be active and actively engaged in the conversation for it to maintain its life. And that traditionally we have seen these these fundraising, fundraising lists plummet in value as soon as the race in question is over. All right, hold on a second. I'm going to This is cuz this is so fun. So Ken, 10.8 is the other data point we wanted to talk about here, right? 10.8. That's that's the lead that Bernie Sanders has over Donald Trump in a general election matchup. Bernie Sanders can beat Donald Trump according to these numbers in a way that Hillary Clinton still cannot. There. That's that's one. Number 2. If he walks out of California with a win, He's walking toward Philadelphia and saying, I've not got not only momentum, I've got not only an ability to continue to raise money, both down ballot and for myself. Number three, all I need are super delegates. And we have precedent in the most recent Democratic primary race for super delegates flipping. And, and you're number, telling me there's no chance. And number four... I am not potentially going to be indicted over an email scandal. So all those things, you know, they they do build and they do make allow him to make a very compelling case, which is why while Hadass and, and Jimmy Kimmel's audience may have laughed at the prospect of a Bernie Sanders Donald Trump debate, I think it is a very real concern for Hillary Clinton that if this guy continues to be out there as a representative of the party and showing these numbers that suggest that he is a better candidate in the general election, she's not going to be able to put him away as quickly as she would like. That said, I think she's still going to be able to put him away, and I don't think the result is really in question. The thing that has been interesting for me to watch over the past few weeks is you've you've seen over the past month, actually, a big shift in how Bernie Sanders supporters see Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders is not only doing better than Clinton in these head-to-head polls against Trump, he's actually, uh, her, his supporters are actually driving her down relative to him. Um, her favorability among Sanders supporters is going down. YouGov tested recently uh, that whereas about a month ago, two-thirds of Sanders supporters said they would support Clinton against Trump, now it's down to half. 
And so he's he's driving every aspect of this. It's not, you know, and again, like more proof that his candidacy is, is kind of still kicking despite this delegate math that we're all looking at. But it's not just that he's doing better than Clinton against against Trump. He's actually driving, uh, his supporters are actually driving that now actively. Charlie, what's wrong with this analysis? Well, I actually, I, I buy a lot of it. I mean, I think there's uh, the growth, the progression of the ca- campaign. It really shows uh, the, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Remember, like think about six months ago or a year ago, we would have laughed at the idea that a 74-year-old socialist from Vermont could actually be the nominee. In fact, most people did, especially in the establishment at the beginning of the campaign, the idea that he could lead the party. But now, all of a sudden, when you've got those numbers, when you've got consistently, if you look at the, the polls since January, there have been 26 matchups between Sanders and Trump. Sanders has won 25 of them consistently by double digits. I mean, he suddenly has a plausible argument. You know, uh, having said that, though, I don't think it's going to change how the superdelegates feel. And keep in mind, he has to win hundreds, not, not just win, he has to flip tons of superdelegates. And I don't think it's going to be enough. And I'm not convinced that uh, the Democratic establishment, which is essentially the superdelegates, believe that he can win yet despite those polls. They see it as different than 2008. I think they saw in 2008 uh, when, when many of the Clinton superdelegates flipped, it wasn't necessarily about November. It was about saving their own butts. That's why they were flipping. A good example would be lots of members of the Black Caucus who early on came out, these superdelegates, in support of Hillary Clinton. But then when they started hearing from their constituents back in the district uh, about Barack Obama, they got scared for their own hides. And that's always the most powerful motivation for elected officials, their own seat. And Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton still hold grudges against some of those superdelegates who they tried to punish. So That's right. I don't know how quick they'll be to uh, to switch to Bernie Sanders, given uh, that she appears to be uh, the likely nominee. I think you all make fine points. I would just say Bernie Sanders has the narrative right now. He's got all the momentum in this story. And it's very difficult to see him dropping out after June the 7th if he can walk away competitive in California. We're just, we're not at the stage of the Democratic primary uh, we thought we were going to be at even a few weeks ago. I agree that he's got an incredibly compelling argument to make to the superdelegates. Millions of votes, could be as many as having won as many as half the states, uh, a very powerful argument. But at the same time, to me, ultimately it comes down to the superdelegates, many of them are elected officials. They aren't scared yet of Bernie supporters. They don't feel that ultimately it's in their own personal self-interest to buck Hillary Clinton and weigh in for Bernie. And when that changes, that's when I think Bernie would be a viable uh, possible nominee. It would be very interesting, actually, circling back to Tim Canova, this Debbie Wasserman Schultz challenger. That primary isn't happening until the end of August. If something like that, if one of these uh, uh, Bernie-supported candidates was going up against someone earlier on, maybe that would have been kind of a, a more interesting test for some of these establishment figures to see how, how much they have to fear uh, these Bernie supporters in their own districts. And I think that's reflected in the Senate. I think it's important to note there's only one senator who backed Bernie Sanders. And that's uh, Jeff Merkley of Oregon. And that is a strong Bernie state. I'm not equating that. I'm not saying he was pressured into it or is only doing it for political reasons, but it's not a coincidence. That's it for us. Thanks, Hadas. Thank you. Scott Bland. Thank you very much. Charlie Matessian. Thanks. Ken Vogel. Fun time as always. 